talked in, in the last hour about the danger of the doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son. And this has come out of a wrong-headed attempt to, in a positive way, cultivate uh, complementarianism and male headship. But it takes the wrong text. So it takes the text in 1 Corinthians 11, and that as uh, uh, the father is ahead of the son, the wife is ahead of, uh, the husband's ahead of the wife. But it's not the head of the son, it's the head of the Christ. And you must pay attention when you read uh, in the Bible, or any time we read of our Savior, as we read the end of chapter 14, of his submission to the Father, that is as the suffering servant, which we looked at two years ago, you say? Anyway, whenever it is, Isaiah 53. This is the contract in heaven between the triune God and God the Son committing to taking to himself a human nature and submitting then to God the Father as the servant of Jehovah in order to be the second Adam. So he came with two responsibilities. He kept the law of God perfectly, which the first Adam failed to do, but God still requires perfect obedience for anyone whom he accepts. And then he paid the penalty which is death, both um, physically and, in his case, uh, judgmentally. He never had spiritual death. And so this was as the Savior Christ. So when he prays or he speaks of the Father, he's doing the Father's will, uh, this is all in this capacity as the God-man. The eternal Son of God is equal with the Father and the Spirit the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What these people say is because he's son, and in all human relationships, the son has some inferior position uh, to the father that he must be eternally subordinate. And the scriptures are very clear that that's not the case. So, And don't let when JWs come to your house confuse you. Just pay attention to what titles or names are being used or in what person Christ is speaking. So when he says, I and the Father are one, he's speaking in his divine nature. When he submits to the Father, he's speaking there in the person of the God-man who has come with a specific covenantal task to uh, fulfill. Is that okay, or do you want more? It's okay. All right. So I've seen seen it... Term eternal functional subordination is that the same thing? Same, same. That in function, in the within the Godhead, he's still subordinate to the Father as Son. Thank you. So, if you hold the mic up to face, I don't have to repeat the question. That's correct. All well, right. I have a follow-up question to that. I think maybe you sort of address that. Um, what are your thoughts then on the that? Uh, economic subordination in the past tense versus whether it's continuous. Okay. Is economic subordination past tense or continuous? He is still exalted as the God-man, but now he is at the right hand of the Father of the Majesty on high. So he's exalted our nature 
um, up there, and he has fulfilled his covenantal responsibility. So he's always going to have our nature um, as the God-man, but he will no longer be uh, subordinate to the Father in our nature. In fact, we'll see the triune God through him, if that's what you're asking me. Yes, sir. About uh, the the uh, the vine and the branch the branches, and uh, talked about uh, that uh, abide abiding in Him. That uh, and the example is uh, seems to be that we and you even said that we rest. Do we rest in Himself? You know, in Him. Uh, if we rest in Him, we bring forth fruit. That seems kind of passive. I guess fruit is on a fruit tree. It, the fruit itself is, a, it doesn't make itself come about. But what is the, is there an active component to this? That's why I use the word nature or cultivate. So we actively abide in Christ. Faith is not static. And that's why we don't talk about abiding in the word. So we must be using all the means of grace. So the word by which he cleansed us initially is the word by which he will continue to make us fruit bearers. And that in itself, if we, if we seek to do that, to abide in him, if we diligently seek him, then we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. Thank you. We are called to judge a tree by its fruit. How do you reconcile that when you see people like Ravi Zacharias, who has spent his entire life seemingly producing mounds of fruit, and then in the end, we're left to wonder the condition of the Well, we must not practice equivocation, right? What fruit did he bear? He brought... I didn't hear what you said first. Obviously, am I off the air now? I had my face in the mic. We must not practice equivocation. Um, What kind of fruit was he bearing? Well, he had a successful ministry. Uh, But uh, evidently, what he had in terms of gospel fruit was like Christmas ornaments. And the appearance of fruit. But... um, I just go to Judas. See, Judas had a successful ministry. Or John, uh, Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, did we not uh, prophesy in your name and in your name do many wonders and cast out demons? And he said, depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. And so it's not my job to put any of these people in hell. But uh, we just are not thrown off by that. They easily could have been successful hypocrites. But we judge the fruit of in their lives if, you know, these things were obvious. Uh, Then it's very interesting in the very chapter when Christ says, don't judge. He's talking there about an unjust judgment and final judgment. He goes on to say, You judge a tree by its fruits. Now, it's up to the church to exercise church discipline. 
the church should be the ones that cutting off branches that appear to be unfruitful, and Lord willing, what they are genuine fruitful branches, they will get engrafted uh, back in. Um, they're never really out, but they'll be revived, uh, so to speak. So, and then that's part of the problem of the, of the celebrity uh, minister, preacher, whatever, because as we've seen in a number of cases, they're very isolated. And thus, much of their practice can be hidden uh, from the world are from their followers that are around them. And of course, we're also coming across the instance where the followers around them are deliberately turning a blind eye or saying, well, after all, God's a God of grace. And um, what was that Southern Baptist? I read this. He, the, he, well, he retired, resigned from being the, the president of the convention and because of sexual morality. He said, well, after all, that was a private offense. <laughs> As if that should not have disqualified him from being president of the, of the convention. So we do make judgments. Um, they're not final judgments, but we can say, by all appearances, you're unconverted. Over here was a hand. Wait, wait for the microphone. The roving mic is coming. Now, I know uh, the books did not come or make it this year. Were there any books in particular that you were going to recommend or hold up? Because I know you guys usually would do that before the sessions. Frankly, I hadn't even thought about it. Uh, there are some. Uh, I think that Pink and Ryle uh, on the Gospel of John are, are very are very useful. Um, any of the books uh, on sanctification, again, Ryle on holiness is a very useful. Uh, Jerry Bridges, particularly his uh, first two books on sanctification are, are very useful. Those would be books that I would have sought to, to bring uh, with me. And Dan, you were just in John. Anything else you... And then the practice of the practice of God and the pursuit of holiness. Of holiness Jerry yeah. Bridges, and then the practice of holiness. Yeah. Um, Adam and Eve had the abide with part of the Holy Spirit, or the the, the abide with part, but not the abide in. Is that correct? Well, Adam and Eve would have been in communion with the triune God in the garden. So they had a quite unique relationship. So when it says that the God came to them in the cool of the day, they, they would have known the triune God and been communing with the triune God. At that point, I don't know that there would be a separate relationship with any member of, of the Godhead. Now, what is said is they did not seek the grace of God and God didn't owe them further grace. So he gave them sufficient grace to withstand the temptation. He didn't owe them a grace that would guarantee they would not fall. And some writers actually say that was because they did not seek more grace from God. But everybody before the giving, the actual, the official giving of the Holy Spirit 
had the Holy Spirit after the fall, the Holy Spirit is alone the person of the Godhead who regenerates and sanctifies. And he inspired the writers of Scripture. And he would indwell rulers, for example, with uh, wisdom and gifts. Even Saul then would have had the Holy Spirit not in a saving way or a permanent way, but in a way to enable him to fulfill his capacity. But for this is the significance of the promise in Joel as it's quoted by Peter. In fact, it might be worth our while because we can get confused uh, by what is uh, being uh, promised there. So in Acts, as Peter quotes the, he gets the, the gist of the promise in Acts 2.17. He said, this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. In the last days, God says, I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind. And that would be all faithful mankind or the church, your elect. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, what is he promising? What is God promising there? Is he promising an age in the last days of, of extraordinary uh, charismatic gifts? No, he's promising a work of the spirit it was limited to a few. So you remember when the Spirit was given to the 70 elders uh, in the camp, and they all were to go out to the meeting place with Moses. Two, for some reason, didn't get out there, but they were in the camp prophesying. And Joshua, jealous, says, well, should I tell him to stop? And you remember Moses' answer? No. I wish all of God's people prophesied. And what he's saying is, I wish all had the Holy Spirit the way these men have the Holy Spirit. That's what God's promising then through Joel, is that every, everyone in the church, from the oldest to the youngest who is regenerate, has the Holy Spirit uh, in a way even superior to what prophets had. But that's, that's what we have. It's our unique heritage. Good question. I'm going to ask a question uh, that's come actually through texts, not even on Facebook. Good. And it's a little bit off the topic, but you kind of brought Boost. it up when you addressed it. Last night, somebody told them they could do that. So, so the, the question is, and notice how I'm wording it, is not complementarianism an extra-biblical concept that is added on to what is the normal patriarchal approach in Scripture? Well, I would say that both terms are abused. Either term understood in its proper significance is a good term. Um, I don't know either term is in Scripture. Complementarianism has to do more with ecclesiastical relationships, uh, as I would understand it. And the egalitarianism would be that there is no distinction of office in the church. I have no difficulty with a biblical patriarchal role that the husband and father are the God-appointed head of the household. But so often, when that is unpacked, it goes beyond the descriptions of places like Ephesians chapter 5, 
or the wife is a helper corresponding to the needs of her husband, thus a partner in his calling and in his ministry. So real headship is the headship of Christ who has the directive and final word. But the difference is that, as I've explained it here in the past, ancient times ago, that uh, a decision to be made, the husband ought not to be thinking because he's the head of the family. He, he can make that decision unilaterally. Sometimes he'll have to. So, for example... Moses had to, uh, Abraham had to make the decision for Sarah to go and uh, prepare a meal for these friends, one of whom was Jehovah. Uh, He didn't consult with her. Um, He was not abusive when uh, when he did that. But the primary way that we would make decisions is we talk, because we're partners. And um, then in talking, if we don't come to agreement. It's the husband's responsibility to make the decision and the wife's responsibility to say, yes, Lord, as Peter says. Yes, Lord. <laughs> no. Um, but it's not a, just a, so, is some of the books on patriarchy, I think, might be a bit heavy-handed. So I'm keen on patriarchy, but... Uh, I think both terms now have a lot of uh, baggage that needs to be explained. That'll probably get me in a lot of hot water, but particularly with that person. <laughs> Dr. Piper, this um, relates more to last evening's Good. message. You said that we will recognize each other in heaven. Mm-hmm. So will we recognize, this is a twofold question, will we recognize each other, say, as um, our spouse or our parent or our brother or sister, will we recognize each other as our familial relationship? I don't know that the Bible answers that. I can say I hope so. Mm -hmm. I don't see any reason why we won't. These relationships will not continue in the same way, uh, but um, we will have memories in heaven. If we, if we recognize people, I don't say we're not going to recognize how we knew them. Right. In the same way that we're going to recognize significant figures, I don't know how. I, mean, I don't know how the disciples knew Moses and Elijah. Uh, but anyway, um, I think we'll recognize, not that we'll have the relationships, but we'll recognize that uh, we were spouses and we'll have a lot of good stories and memories. The second part of my question is, will we know who's missing? Will we know who's missing? As best I can understand that, we will. Now, this is going to be the part that's going to shock you. And we're going to rejoice. There can be no sadness in heaven. We're in heaven. We're going to know the perfect beauty of God's holiness. And thus we shall be perfectly satisfied with his justice. So I would not want to symbolize that. No, we will know. And we won't gloat, but we will glory in God who has done perfectly with them.
That was a hard question, Lenny. Don't give her the mic anymore. <laughs> you talked about us continually uh, being cleansed after initially being cleansed, but uh, and about the ordinary means of grace. Is is that what communion is about? Communion with Christ or the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper, I'm sorry. I'm, well, I'm not, a former Catholic. The Lord's Supper does not cleanse us, but it will be a means by which we seek the Spirit of Christ to cleanse us because of our unworthiness. A verse I hadn't thought about until just now is in, uh, uh, in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of unrighteousness. And then in 1 John 3, that there's this cleansing that's taking place through confession of sins. So part of the approach to the Lord's Supper is going to be uh, that confession. Um, but the Lord's Supper, it will be a strengthening means of grace. So it'll strengthen us in repentance. It'll strengthen us in the acts of faith it itself does not have that efficacy. And we don't do that daily, but daily we do... We confess, confess our confess sins our daily, sins. and that's how we're cleansed. And, and, and uh, he cleanses. Yeah. She has a question. I can just see it. They're bubbling up in her eyes. Huh? Do you? Hmm? Yeah. You sure? <laughs> Follow-up question on uh, the subordination issue. Uh, at the end of first, uh, not at the end, but but um, after uh, the, Paul's discussion of, of Christ's resurrection in First Corinthians 15, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, he's he's spoken of. Um, Christ coming, Christ being raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who are asleep. Uh, and then us, uh, um, in Christ, all will be made alive, each in his own order. After, after that, those who are Christ that is coming. Uh, and then uh, he goes on, to, Paul goes on to speak about Christ reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Uh, for he has put all things in subjection under his, his feet. That is, God has put all things under subjection to his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, that is, God is accepted, who put all things in subjection to him. And then verse 28 really is the, is the question, uh, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Uh, comments on... Well, there's a, a lot of different interpretations of that passage, I, and I, I need to do more with it, but basically it seems to me that that is the final handing over of the, uh, of the Messianic kingdom uh, to the Father. And Christ will always be the mediator, but no longer, I think, in that humiliation of the God-man. Thank you. Judge Morris has been quiet today. 
more text or stuff on mind? I'm glad. I'm sure I did not answer that question appropriately for anybody that was going to ask it. <laughs> <laughs>